Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Now, I don't wear Mac Weldon because I'm a girl, but my husband does. And I'm going to tell you the best thing about it isn't how great it feels. It's this magic technology they have that keeps it from stinking, basically. Um, it's antimicrobial, whatever it is. What it does is keep my husband from smelling for longer than he might naturally. And that keeps us from fighting about who's going to do the laundry. And we get to focus on more important things we want to fight about, like, you know, WikiLeaks. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And if my husband can do it, trust me, you can do it too. It is the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like the first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. And not only does Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. Uh, they're good for working out. They're good for wearing around the house. They're good for whatever you want to do. Sleeping in them, for instance. I kind of like that part. Now go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order using the promo code FRIENDS. Again, that's FRIENDS, like the show. MacWeldon.com and 20% off your order using the code FRIENDS. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and you are listening to With Friends Like These, a podcast about uncomfortable conversations, some of which are more uncomfortable than others. This one's mm, relatively comfortable, like new jeans, uncomfortable. It's with my friend and friend of the pod, Rick Wilson, who calls himself a Republican troublemaker. And then in the second part of the show, we'll loop in my colleague, Jane Coatson, who is a writer and reporter at MTV News. And in that section, we're going to tackle an audience question about violence and when it's appropriate. Now, the show. You are Rick Wilson, Republican troublemaker, friend of the pod. Uh, ad maker, you were just telling me you have some ads you're working on right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about them at all? Do we get a preview? I can't really talk about them. Well, a couple of them are, are some, some off-year election stuff, but those aren't really that interesting. And the ones that are interesting, I can't talk about. But uh, you'll you'll be seeing them in the next uh, in the next week or two. Well, that's the story of your life, isn't it? The interesting stuff you can't talk about. Pretty much, that's, <laughs> it's a frequent problem that I have. Because your your background, in addition to being a Republican operative, you worked uh, in the Pentagon. As I recall, is that correct? I worked. Uh, yeah, I I worked at the Pentagon for four years during the during the uh, when when this guy named Dick Cheney, who you may have heard of, was the Secretary of Defense. So that's part of why I have a kind of interesting background that isn't just the normal Republican guy out uh, doing campaign stuff. Mm -hmm. And it puts you in a uniquely, perhaps informed position to talk about what's going on in the American political scene right now. I think it does. I generally tend to agree with that. <laughs> I know a little bit more. I know a little bit more, and I have a wider circle of acquaintance on those areas than, than, than the average dog, as I like to say. Well, let's just start there, um, just sort of get some news out of the way. This latest WikiLeaks dump, which seems to have um, reminded some people that WikiLeaks is sometimes the bad guy. What do you make of that? Well, look, I mean, the, WikiLeaks is, a, is a, an adjunct of the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence. They work for them. They are, they are completely owned by them. Julian Assange has this little fig leaf where he says, oh, I didn't get this from the Russians. Well, he has a pass-through, obviously, at some point where he gets it from the Russians. This is stuff that happens from state actors as a general rule, not not from, you know, random... The, 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 the 400, pound, 400 pound hacker. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, and, and obviously, you know, you look at WikiLeaks, and it's, it's, it's interesting that not even a tiny fraction of the stuff that they, that they leak out there has anything to do with Putin or the Russians or 
or, or human rights abuses in the in Russia and 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 the invasions of of countries surrounding Russia's borders and the vast apparatus that Putin has built to, to surveil and oppress his people. So you know the, the deductive reasoning isn't that hard to look at the at who really runs the runs the show. I mean Julian Assange is the classic sort of uh, uh, you know front player in this new version of the old song we used to see from the Soviets all the time of quote unquote peace groups springing up, hmm. you know, across the world, strangely always opposing the U S and never opposing the Russians. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's an old story and you've got to remember Putin was a lifetime uh, checkist. He was a lifetime spy and, and a member of the former KGB. And this is a guy who's, this is wired into his DNA and this kind of politically disruptive shenanigan he tried to pull this year is wired into the DNA of Russia's overseas attempts to, to to discredit and to diminish the power of the U.S. and to and to make Russia more of a player on the world stage. Now, you've worked in both intelligence and in um, opposition research, which makes you probably more conspiratorially minded than most, I would think. So let's just use that for a second. What do you think of the timing of this dump? I mean, just coming as uh, you have... Well, it, 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 it structured... Yeah, oh, no, no. Listen, they have a very keen understanding of the post-truth media landscape in this country. And they recognized there was a news hook in there that would allow the lunatics, and it would percolate up from the fever swamp side of InfoWars and Breitbart and all the... all And Gateway Pundit, all the coops. And that one news hook in there was to say, oh, it, this was the CIA secretly making it look like the Russians mm. were hacking Trump. Ah, it's the inside deep state trying to get to Donald. And, and they knew that hook would be there, and it sure enough is. And by now, it's percolated up through that system, and now it's got Sean Hannity saying, you know, obviously WikiLeaks has proven that, that, that the CIA was behind hacking Trump, and this wasn't the Russians at all. You know, and it's, of course complete batshit lunacy <laughs> but these people will buy anything right. at all if they say this helps donald trump this is this is you know this is to help you know protect trump this is part of you know the people who oppose trump will do anything right. and and you know we are in a very strongly post-truth environment and these guys have absolutely no qualms uh about both both exploiting that to achieve the Russian, you know, state ends, and and to pushing our democracy into a very deep and dark hole, where where you know we've become divided not only on on the ideological stuff which we've always sort of had, but now there's a sense of a deeper sense of, of that's emerging I think in the in Trump world of a sort of uh, post regard for democratic norms and for you know civil society in a way that is, is, is challenging and dangerous for this country. And, of course, that's where you and I agree. But I kind of want to exploit sort of this, this, this perhaps narrow ground of our agreement, which you have danced upon in the past few months, right? Like, you're, you're one of the mm-hmm. left's favorite people on the right. You know, you are an incredibly popular never-Trump person um, because right. of your background and experience and also... You have a very clever way with words. You were always a speed dial um, for reporters in Washington looking for a (laughs) a quippy um, quote. But I also wonder, so your background, as I mentioned before, is both kind of spooky stuff and oppo, which is in its own way a kind of spook endeavor. And you specialized in attack ads, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know... The funny thing is, a lot of folks on the right have said, "Oh, well, Wilson's got all these new friends on the left. Strange new respect." You know, the thing about the thing about the situation is, I haven't changed my beliefs. I, I haven't changed who I am. Um, I think there's just a, a weird moment of common ground about a threat that's bigger than a lot of the lanes we've been in ideologically in this country for a very long time. And that's easy. I can agree with you right away. But I'm also really curious because. You know, those attack ads that you did, like you've done some really infamous mm. ones. You've done, you did a Jeremiah Wright ad at the closing yeah. days of 2008 that... The original. The original Jeremiah Wright ad that seemed to punch a yeah. lot of fear and hate buttons. Um, I, I don't sure. think you can argue with that. You did an ad that nope. was regarded on many by many on the left as one of the most despicable ads of the modern era, which was an ad about uh, 
for against Georgia's Max Cleland, Georgia Senator Max Cleland, a paraplegic, uh, three-time amputee veteran that used a montage of images to question his firmness on battling terrorists. Ah, see, that's that's interesting because that's one of the things that people really, uh, they sort of have the demonology of that ad in their head. Uh Uh-huh. And, and, and really, the images up front, all that did was frame what was facing the country. The actual thing <laughs> that, that we know from the testing, yeah, we know from testing that took out Cleveland was the, the list of the votes, because he was out there on the stump saying, I'm with George Bush 100%, we're going to protect this country. And he was holding up mm. votes about the, the about and by, by the okay. way, you know, we can always look back in hindsight, he was holding up votes about the Department of Homeland Security because he wanted it to be unionized. And and so we rang his bell on that ad, but if you ask a lot of Democrats, they'll say, oh, that was the ad where Wilson put a turban on, on Max Cleveland. He made him look like Bin Laden. He morphed him into the... Nothing of the sort happened in the ad. Okay, well, and, now, Rick, you know what you were doing. Like, you know the power of Of course of I know what I was doing. Like, you know <laughs> the way that images work on a, on a brain in an attack ad. Like... You, you, you're not surprised that that was the read by some people of that ad. Listen, I'm not surprised by it, but I also didn't set out to make something that was going to have my guy, who was 17 points back, end up being one of the few U.S. Senate races in the country that didn't win. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything in that ad that questioned Max Cleveland's patriotism. I didn't do anything in that ad that, that wasn't factual. And mm. that's the and that's the, the, yeah, that's let's, the ball let's, game. That's where I want to drill the down. Other side, the other the other side will go after my folks and say, you know, John Smith wants to kill your father-in-law, your 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 aged elder mother. John Smith wants poor people to eat dirt by the <laughs> side of the road. I mean, we all play these games. We all push hard. It is a it is a con- it is a full contact sport all the time. Uh-huh. And and I would I don't expect the other side to show any mercy on my side, and vice versa. Now. Are there boundary layers that we that we stay out of? Sure. I've never brought up another candidate's kids, mm. even when I could have. I, I try never to, to, to get into a candidate's personal life stuff, like divorces and things, because all these weird human tragedies that amateurs think are effective frequently aren't. Mm. So that's and not a moral judgment. So, that's just a professional judgment. It's both. It's both. I, I, I see no reason. I see no reason. You know, it has the advantage of being the right thing to do, as well as being the, the effective thing to do. That sounds like a great negative ad. A great negative ad tells you something about the other person that you already knew mm. and that you already sensed. Look, in, in the world of opposition research, there are very, very few silver bullets, but there are there are patterns of behavior you can illustrate that make an ad effective. Well, I. But I kind of want to drill down on this idea that you didn't you didn't bend the truth for that Max Cleland ad, which I'm sure that 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 is the case in a literal sense. But I wonder when you look back on the attack ads you've done, especially the incredibly effective ones, which do play upon people's existing fears and biases. Right. That's the nature of a good attack ad on the left or the right. Do you see Mm -hmm. a connection between attack ads and those becoming kind of a dominant strain of a, a political discourse and the fact that we're living in this post-truth era, you know, the, the when you well, play upon f- people's fears and biases, even in a subconscious way, are you setting the world up for someone to? I, I think, but I think actually, what set the world up for that is that we've we've developed these two competing media ecosystems, mm. where on the right, for years and years and years, we said things like, if only we got a fair hearing. The, the power of conservative ideas would be so overwhelming if only we could get through this this filter that liberal mainstream media has put up against us. Okay, so instead of trying to to create an actual media enterprise that that got those ideas out, we decided to build in the form of Fox and Rush, and it and at its at its high point now, at, at its absolute peak of the ship mountain, is Breitbart. Right where they didn't decide to build a competing news thing, they decided they were going to build a funhouse mirror version of the of, 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 of you know the worst excesses of the liberal mainstream media cliche. Okay. So that became very powerful and it was it was popular and it was monetized very successfully in the form of Fox and talk radio. 
And those things have become the definitional sort of post-truth vectors on the right. And, and you know, the remnants of conservative media are chasing these ever wilder stories to try to, to try to get, get them clicks. And, and so, and on, and on the left, there's a, there's a similar ecosystem and a similar sort of cultural, uh, both sides have a kind of cultural hermetic cultural little bubble. They're increasingly living in and they don't know people on, on the other side of the fence. They don't talk to people on the other side of the fence. They don't compete on ideas anymore. It's just competing on volume and firepower. Well, you've hit upon the whole purpose of this show, so I thank you for that, which is to sort of try and have conversations with people on the other side of the fence. I wonder, there is a little bit of that happening in general. There was a trend story in the New York Times, actually, over the weekend that mentioned this very show, as well as some other attempts by basically the MSM, the mainstream media and liberal sure. media, to do at least sociological research, if not actual bubble bursting. You know, as someone who's who is a red stater, right? By born and bred. Yep. Uh, hap, you know, you are one of the people that uh, can be stereotyped, right? Your 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 likes and dislikes, your cultural sensibilities. You're a Trump voter by culture, if not actual support. I would say, for the profile. What do you think of those those outreaches? What did I mean? They, I mean, they must seem a little condescending. Well, look, I, I think. I mean, I, think I, a, I hope you I don't feel condescended to by coming on the show, but like, we'll we'll accept no, this project, of course. But not at all. Yeah. And 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 look, if if you were to take the normal demographic profile of a fifty three year old guy who hunts, loves guns, drives a pickup truck, and lives in North Florida, I mean, I think I'm probably about as rare as a goddamn unicorn. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody else in that demo. You know, no matter what, and no matter their you know education level or whatever, almost certainly voted for Donald Trump. Right. And you know, I think on the left, it would be productive for them to talk to folks that are outside of their hermetic bubble, and and vice versa. But I mean, I I will, I will tell you, and I'm, this is the dirty little secret. This is free advice for the Democrats, and this would be so easy for them, and they don't get it. They'll they'll flip out when they hear this advice. Drop the gun control shit. And they could win back those voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio because those guys, those white male voters, those union guys, those guys who drive pickup trucks, in many, many ways, they're Democrats, culturally, behaviorally, everything else. They're union workers. They're lower middle class. One of the number one things you heard in focus groups a thousand times from those guys is, I'm, you know, I'm a deer hunter. I'm sick of this goddamn lectures from these people like Hillary Clinton. It would be something if Democrats would just reconfigure on that. And I know it's a, it's a matter of their like you know, the center of their of their identity. Those are why you lost those people, and mm. there is a certain degree to which they feel talked down to, they feel insulted. Now, in some ways, honest answer, they often deserve to have to be checked. Both on the left and right, there are people that deserve to be checked, but they were sold a cultural di- differential on things like guns and religion. Um, and NASCAR and all these things that they feel like they're they're despised for and looked down on, and and look on the on the other side of the fence, it's not every Democrat, not every liberal is a is a tofu eating transgender third world music listening Brooklyn hipster. <laughs> Statistically, so, very you know, very few of them could be really. Yes, exactly. Um, but well, you know, we're in an era though where I think the outreach, you know. There's a really weird narrow line, I think, on the right, where some people say, oh, we've got to listen to these folks who are the disadvantaged, and they're, they've, they've been left behind, they've been ignored, they've been dissed, all these things. Well, you know, there's also some tough love that ought to be given to those people. Mm-hmm. And it's not all because brown people came from Mexico and took your job. It's not all because the evil George Soros killed your coal mine. It's not all because... You know, there's some Washington, D.C. conspiracy to, to, to blow up the fact that in the old days, a guy could get a high school education and raise four kids and buy a house in the suburbs and have a bass boat. Mm. The world changes, and, and, and a lot of messaging on my side has been telling those people, it's okay, no, it's not good. We're going to change it back. We're going we're gonna to convert it back to what it was. Because, you know, these folks that think we're going to go back to the 1950s and it's going to be, um, you know... A, a white industrial American dream part two, 
you know, they, they're, they're, they're telling a, a comfortable lie to people who have been economically distressed by a changing world. And I know that, you know, my version of tough love is saying, you know, it wasn't George Soros who took your job. It was, it was technology. It wasn't Barack Obama who killed your coal mine. It was natural gas. You know, all these things that people, they, they, they accepted the comfortable lie because it was a great lie told by a great liar. And also it plugged into existing fears and biases, right? I mean, robots took their jobs, but, you know, there aren't pictures of robots crossing the border, right? There aren't images of robots um, committing crimes on Fox News. There's images of brown people. And the amplification. I cannot emphasize enough the amplification factor of Fox News on the right. It, it used to be, and look, I admire what Rupert built as a business and what, what Roger built as a business, but it has become something that has is, that is exceeded all control. It has become something that is mutated and metastasized into, into a much different uh, creature than it was before. And it becomes this agenda-setting ecosystem of... You know, Fox News, talk radio, uh, the online outlets that that have increasingly dominated the, the quote news space, and I use that term very very lightly. <laughs> and, you know, and of course the big social media ecosystem that surrounds all of it now. Fox is still the it is is the it is the the blowtorch of which there is no rival in terms of changing American political discourse. Yeah, I want to drill down a little bit on on something you said, though. We'll get back to media. But you were talking about what the Democrats could do to appeal to Trump voters. And you mentioned guns specifically, which we'll get into in our next segment with Jane Coatson. But because I think they actually might. You may actually be on to something there. So there's two things about that are interesting to me. One is that um, you didn't mention abortion, but let's come back to that. The second Mm -hmm. one is you're not really endorsing the kind of forced anthropological project that some people are engaging in, self-included, which which is that listening tour that seems to be going on right mm-hmm. now. All you're saying is, like, just change your fucking policy so that, you know, people in red states can get with you. You're, you're not saying, like, there needs to be the kumbaya moment. You're saying, you know, just do something that will actually like. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of a reductionist on these things. And, and I, I, you know, I want to get to the X. I want to get to the, to the goal line on, on, on things like this. And the anthropology is fascinating. And as a numbers guy and a, and a guy who likes to look at, like, look at long reports, um, the, the numbers are very interesting. And, and that, that study is very interesting. But I think as a kind of guy who bridges a lot of different cultural worlds, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable in the hunt field and I'm perfectly comfortable you know, talking to people about about more elevated blah blah blah. <laughs> you probably um, don't say blah 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 then, but yeah, <laughs> probably not. Generally, no. But um, uh, you know, look, the mystery of human nature is not so. In this case, you know, although no one can know all the secrets of the human heart, human behavior is kind of explicable, and we kind of understand where a lot of these things come from, and and we understand what feeds them and these 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 issues, and it isn't so much in my view, a, a sense of, of lower middle class white folks feeling like they've been called racist a billion times. They have been called racist a billion times. And they, and they are sick of it. But that's not, the, that's not the underpinning driver. The underpinning driver is this anxiety about change and about the world whipping past them so fast that they don't understand what's going on. Where these certitudes and these certainties that they had for generations are now gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, this, this is from a while ago, but we were doing a focus group in in Wisconsin a few years ago, and this guy just broke down in tears. He had voted for George Bush twice and for Barack Obama once. Okay, mm-hmm. and he said, "I can't get. I don't get the world. I don't get it. My grandfather did the same job at the at the Ford plant that my dad did, and that I was supposed to do. And now I'm fucked. Now I have nothing because the the plant closed. Right." Mm-hmm. And these guys felt like there was a consistency and a and a continuum about the world around them, and it's gone. And the, and that's what's driving so much of this with these folks because they're marginally they're they're mar- they're clinging to a sort of dream of the American middle class that isn't there anymore. They're rocked constantly by increasing, you know, the increasing not just the amount of change but the rate of the change. 
and and the world feels very uncertain. They're clinging to things that they want to really hold on to. And Barack Obama wasn't when he said clinging to guns and religion. He actually touched something that, in his normal smart way, he didn't get. He was contemptuous of it, and I think that was a really terrible moment for him. And and it's almost catalyzed a lot of these people out there who who aren't ashamed of their guns and religion, and you can't make them ashamed of it. And they don't. But he wasn't you know, wrong. These are, yeah, he wasn't wrong that they're that they're doing that. But mm-hmm. he but he was wrong in the way he approached it with them, and he was wrong in. In, in some of the reasons they're doing it, he, he thinks it's because they're they're you know that they love guns and they're and they're worshiping their primitive sky god, um, Rick. But but they're using it as as a mechanism to control the anxiety and the fear they have about change. So you just went on this very lovely kind of empathetic monologue about these people, and then you just stunk right back into stereotyping and dismissing Obama, because you know that's not what he thinks. Like, you know, I don't want to argue about this, but like, it's just fascinating to me that you could do something like pretty, you know, like being very generous to these people. I do want to ask you if you really think it's just economic anxiety, as they say. Um, but you know, Obama's a person of faith and like doesn't think of, of, of the sky god, it doesn't dismiss the sky god. Like, Look, I look. Ah! I, I, am, I am, if nothing else, a smartass. Okay. okay, and, and so, you just, but you just relaxed yeah. back into like sort of the same, the same kinds of like jokes that like anyone on the right would make, which I get, and like I can make them too about about you know, as a person on the left, like I can joke about the you know war on women or whatever. I, I think the but, I think the context of where he made that that remark, you know, it, it had all these all these confluences in, in when and how he made that remark, you know, a fundraiser in San Francisco and all that. It just sort of, it, it was, it was sort of a perfect storm. I think he probably does regret saying that by the way. Oh, I think he I regrets think, it, I but I also don't think that was a completely cynical thing to say, but I don't want to argue about what Obama was or wasn't thinking. Sure, sure. I, I do kind of want to get back to a couple things. And, and that's, are was your, disquisition there a very a, a longer version of the oh they're just suffering from economic anxiety line that we heard pundits use because i know also you're very aware of the entrenched you know racial anxiety on the right as well oh, look uh, listen uh, here's the thing uh, and i've i've told my friends on the right this for a long time so as a guy raised in the south um the journey is long and arduous and slow, and it's and and it it is full of imperfections and twists and turns. But if you are not aware that there is still racism in this country, you're a damn fool. And if you deny that it exists completely, you're operating off of an agenda, not a not a acknowledgement of the of the history of this country. It doesn't mean that you know it's it's like the spectrum of of you get the clan on one side of this thing, and the people that that genuinely don't consciously ever engage in r- racist behavior or who genuinely don't, you know, partly because they don't interact with a lot of African-Americans or, or people of other races. And a lot of those people have felt like they've been, they've been lumped into the, you know, if you don't favor reparations, you're with the Klan. They feel like that. And it's, and it's a, it's a rough spot to be in, but denying the fact that, that there is, has been racial, uh, stress in this country for for generations, centuries, uh, and denying that is a damn fool thing. And I think that one of the big problems on the right at the moment is Trump has in the in the slipstream of his campaign and his behavior um, moved and and normalized a lot of these people who who aren't just dumbass fat guys in in white hoods burning a cross in the middle of the night. But who are more sophisticated purveyors of of modern day racism, and who really would love to see, you know, the white homeland version of America. And frankly, I think they're the most I think they're the the most dangerous aspect of American society today, by by leaps and bounds. And that is why so. you have engaged on this narrow strip of common ground. I know that um, that you have with the left. What do you think we should be doing? You know, we can go on each other's talk shows and talk about the dangers <laughs> here. We can talk about how terrible this is. We can talk about the the alt right, and we can talk about Steve Bannon's white nationalism. 
Um, and we can talk about the way that, you know, this tiny group of people has played upon a less virulent strain of racism among the larger population in order and play, parlay that into immense power where they can enact actual white nationalist policies. Yes. That's what's yeah. happening. And what can, but you, you, you were the ad guy, you were the campaign guy, you're the guy, you know, information warrior or disinformation warrior. What do we do? <laughs> Here's the main, the main part of it. You have to elect people of goodwill. Uh, on the right, you have to elect people who haven't followed this particular anti-intellectual fashion down into the white nationalist rabbit hole. And that's going to be tough for a while. Because right now, um, the theme of everybody is, I'm Lil Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, these candidates are coming up in the next election cycle, and a lot of them are terrified of, the, of their own base. So they're going to they're going to excuse and follow the ball on every Trump excess, and some of them are going to nod and wink at you know, at, at, we're stopping those brown people from coming over our borders. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a hard assignment. I mean, right now, I, 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 I'm normally a fairly optimistic guy. I never, I'm never out of the fight. I'm always leaning in and pushing forward. But I do think that Trumpism uh, has reshaped the Republican Party in a lot of ways. And if we're not very, very careful, it's going to reshape the Republican Party to have a whole bunch of guys who believe things like Steve Bannon does. And, and right now, that is by no means the majority in the House or the Senate. And by no means even a even a meaningful fraction of the House and the Senate, maybe a little more in the House than the Senate, but it is a risk, and it is a risk that I think is is bordering on existential for what the Republican Party means as a conservative, uh, if if it continues. So I think, I, and look, I don't have a. I wish I had a one, two, three solution that would walk back the White House uh, policy direction uh, and the and the tone and the flavor and the attitude that has been stoking some of these things. And, and the other part of it is, you know, look, the long, the long path in America of integration and, and moving ourselves out of purely racial lanes, we have known since, you know, uh, since before slavery, or since before the Civil War, that, that the artifacts of slavery were going to take generations and generations to work through our system. Like I said, I wish I had a, a hand wave that I could tell you, here's my brilliant idea to fix this, mm. but I don't. <laughs> so, well, let me let me make it a little more short term and concrete, which is that I I think you're right that candidates we're going to see coming up in the GOP are going to be tr Trump bets, and the ones the people that are not new are going to be scared of Trump and therefore make themselves a little more Trumpy. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for you as a potential voter or as someone who makes choices about candidates? Would you be willing to support a Democratic candidate that was going to hold Trump's feet to the fire over a Republican candidate that was going to roll over? Well, I can say this. I have never voted for a Democratic candidate in my, in my, long, in my, in my long ass life. And I don't know that I'm going to find myself in that situation yet. But it, it, there's a real question of how much longer. You see, I, I voted for Republicans not because I was a Republican, um, but because I was a conservative. And I believe in free markets, and I believe in free, uh, individual liberty, uh, and I believe in the Constitution. Now, all those three things right now are no longer characteristics of mm -hmm. Donald Trump's policy and ideology. Mm -hmm. He is a crony capitalist of the highest possible order, and frankly... As an example, this undoing of Obamacare that he is pushing this week, I'm no fan of Obamacare. I think it had some good heart in it, but it was a disaster from a whole bunch of implementation perspectives and, and caused all these unintended consequences. But the bill he's doing now, a friend of mine who's a, who is a healthcare policy expert, and I'm not one, said to me, he said, this is just a slightly different set of rewards for slightly different groups in pharma and slightly different groups in the insurance industry, and very different groups in the American citizenry. Like yes, and yes, right, right, right. With a with a set of disastrous consequences, I think in in ways. And look, was was there some other solution to to reducing healthcare costs and increasing coverage? I'm sure there was. I'm sure Obamacare. It, it, I'm positive Obamacare 
was not done out of hostility or malice, but it was done in a way that it still had to take care of all these competing Washington interests. And so it's a train wreck. Mm-hmm. So it's a big old mess. I would say that it's an it's an it's ugly, but it's not a wreck. Like, but yeah, but what you're saying okay. here, let's move yeah. it back to the main point here, which is that I agree that this monstrosity that they've said is the replacement is does embody a lot of the worst of post Trump GOP ideas, right. and, and, that, and that's what you're. And you, I was back, making you. I'm trying to make you say what about when, how yeah, how dedicated are you? Yeah, let me say this back to your question. I voted for Republicans because they were the conservative party. We were the conservatives in the field. And so, you know, I believe in free markets. We now have a president who who bullies companies, screams at them, wants to impose massively higher tariffs and, and, and restrictions on the way businesses operate in the free market. If Barack Obama picked winners and losers and it was wrong, Donald Trump picking winners and losers is fill in the blank now, Republicans, you know. Um, you know, and I believe in individual liberty, um, which, which you know, I depart from some of my Republican brethren on this, <laughs> but I, I believe that a lot of your rights are rights to be left the fuck alone. And I do not believe that you will have uh, a guy like this who is rapidly and massively expanding the state, rapidly and massively expanding federal law enforcement powers. You know, and one day it's going to be the brown people getting off airplanes, and the next day it's going to be your papers, please. Because these kind of things always metastasize. They always grow faster than you think. They always have to expand the circle of people they surveil and the, 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 and people they seek to control. So I'm kind of wondering where the, the individual liberty part of the Trump universe comes in, because I don't hear anything. The guy doesn't use phrases like liberty or freedom. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. is a statist and an authoritarian in waiting. So I don't see a lot of, of, of hope in that regard. And and look, I believe in, in, in fiscal probity and, and fiscal sanity, and this is a guy proposing you know, a trillion dollars for a, an infrastructure bill and a trillion dollar child care program and a trillion dollars here and there. And, you know, I think we all know that Donald Trump's view of, of meeting financial obligations is looser <laughs> than most of us. Uh, and, so, and so, look, if you end up in a situation where you have a, a fiscally conservative Democrat and a authoritarian Republican, we'll see. You know, a lot of it depends on the people in the in question. But you know, I've reached the point where party loyalty has been tested and strained to the breaking point. Uh, it, for me, in particular, and and I think for a number of Republicans, and I think there is a large. It's not quite a majority. It's not a majority inside the Republican Party, but there's a large cohort in the Republican Party that look at Trump and worry every day. Is this what I believe? Is this what I bought? For? Is this what I paid for? Yeah, I, I think I, I hope you speak for other Republicans. Um, I know it's going I to be so. the midterms will be a clarifying moment for us. And you know what? It, it seems to me that both parties need to be out there, you know, recruiting the best candidates. And Rick, do you know what service they might use to recruit candidates? I'm going to tell you. Um, you can tell me. <laughs> it's Go zip, ahead. It's ZipRecruiter, Rick. Are you hiring ZipRecruiter? ZipRecruiter, the the employment sourcing system? That's right. ZipRecruiter. That is right. If you are hiring, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Post your job in the one place. It isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter, you can post to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. I know that must appeal to any kind of conservative. People want to conserve their own energy, for instance. And you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide, maybe even politics. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, which is something you know about. Rate them and hire the right person fast. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. I'm going to say it one more time for the slower folks in the audience. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. And we're going to take a short break. I'll be right back with both uh, Rick and my colleague Jane Coaston will join us for a conversation about this shared territory that we might be finding as Democrats, Republicans, liberals, and conservatives. 
You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. Welcome back to With Friends Like These. I am Anna Marie Cox. We are talking to Rick Wilson, Republican troublemaker. And joining our conversation is Jane Coatson, my colleague at MTV News, where she is a writer and reporter. Hi, Jane. Hello. How are you doing? We are, well, we just had, of course, a not very cheering conversation, but um, we're going to go with something even darker now. <laughs> I <laughs> these, it's dark, these are dark days. We are going to attempt to grapple with a question from a listener, uh, Justin Hendricks, who sent in a question that seems it was relevant the day he sent it. It's probably going to remain relevant. And here it is. So one of the things I'm worried about is seeing protests turn violent. And I've been having some back and forth with people on Twitter about when is it okay for protesters to become violent? We're going to see in the next few months probably some horrific things happening with immigrants being detained, being deported, being ripped from their families. Um, and so the, the pressure is going to be on for protests in the streets to figure out how to deal with that. And I don't know what the right answer is. I believe in nonviolence. I believe in nonviolent protests. And yet it's not my door that's going to get knocked down. So, guys, (laughs) you know, I want to be clear. I don't think Justin is asking about the kind of violence that happened, let's say, at Berkeley um, when Milo, get your yayas out, was going to speak. I don't think he's talking about, like, rioting for rioting's sake. I think, you know, at the end there, he brings up the fact that, you know, we are facing a government that seems willing to turn to pretty extreme means in order to enforce some authoritarian, I was going to say fairly authoritarian, but I'll just say in order to enforce some authoritarian policies. And Rick, I'm interested in your perspective on this because this is the thing that, you know, we've, the right has been warning us about for years when we've had a Democrat president, right? Yeah, it, 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 I, I know a lot of guys on the right who, who believe that, that that was coming and that Barack Obama's goons under Jade Helm or whatever other conspiracy were going to kick down their door, take their guns, and, uh, and put them in FEMA camps. And, you know, the, the, there was a formulation that I always found very troubling as a, as a guy who, who loves to shoot, loves guns, but these guys with vote from the rooftops t-shirts, oh. um, you know, that, that used to exist on, on my side, suddenly, now that the state is authoritarian in a direction that they like, they're suddenly quiet again. They're suddenly happy again. And, and I, I, find that, I find that concerning because I do think, you know, in the broader, deeper kind of question of, of when is violence acceptable against state power, you know, look, our founders believed that violence was acceptable against state power if its state power had become tyrannical and oppressive. They built that into our political DNA in this country. And, and, and so the real question is, you know, ex- except for the Civil War and a couple of tiny little, you know, you know, brush fires here and there in our country, it's never reached that point. And are we there now? Certainly not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that people, the American tradition and the American recognition that government can become so tyrannical that it cannot be born mm-hmm. is something that, that we need to keep in mind. I mean, there's a, there's a shorter version of that phrase. And you always have to ask yourself where you are on, the, on a certain spectrum, and that spectrum is somewhere between too late to work inside the system and on the other end of it is too soon to start shooting motherfuckers. <laughs> somewhere in there, you know, is, is kind of where we feel like right now. Mm. I, it, I don't think you're going to see, because of the political impetus on the part of Bannon and others, they want this tension in the mm. country. They want this fear factor built in the country that we're under imminent threat and so, therefore, any excess of state power is is, is acceptable and necessary. Now, Jane, um, Jane brings a, a, a somewhat different perspective to this, but I I know that there's some of what what Rick is saying that you agree with. Right, definitely. I, I remember joking pretty soon, uh, kind of after inauguration, like what was going to happen to all those people who fundraised off of Barack Obama seizing a third term through martial law. <laughs> and uh, I I hope those fundraisers <laughs> are going well for them. Mm-hmm. Um. 
But yeah, I think that, and it's interesting because I think that we talk about um, kind of an authoritarian response to protest, but we've seen that again and again. I've actually spent a great deal of past weeks going to the FBI's COINTELPRO documents um, with how they were going after both Black Panther, the Black Panthers, civil rights groups, and the KKK, and all of which they were doing through the lens of none of this is properly American. Mm. Um, one of the major plans that they used against the Klan in the late 60s was to send postcards to the members of, to the homes of members of the Klan saying, we know you're members of the Klan, but your neighbors wouldn't want to know, you wouldn't want your neighbors to know because that would make you look bad and make you look less American. Mm-hmm. But it had nothing to do with the fact that being in the Klan is in itself bad. <laughs> that you wouldn't want other people to know you were in the Klan because that would make you look bad at, like, Tupperware parties. But, yeah, I think that the challenge, you know, for, for years we've responded to legitimate and illegitimate concerns regarding our country's future with violence. Or with curtailing the rights of people, you know, when you mean the Black government Panthers, has responded to that, the government, yeah, the government has responded to when those threats. The Black Panthers were like, "Oh, we can use open carry in California." California, under then Republican Governor Ronald Reagan, responded with the Mann Act, which banned open carry, and it had nothing to do with you know other people using having guns openly. It had to do with the fact that the Black Panthers were holding rifles and walking around the state legislature. And people got scared because apparently that was scary. So I think the way to remember that, like, this isn't rel- this isn't new. And I-, I do agree with Rick's point that it is very interesting to me that suddenly the same people who were very concerned about, like, you know, who's the Milwaukee sheriff who said that we needed to take pitchforks to uh, Washington? Who's the same person now just demanding that we all David Clark? Yeah, David Clark. Yes. Exactly. You know, now there's the person demanding that we all adhere to Trump's regime. Right. Well, and and also we might be seeing a repeat of the Black Panther move because I sent you guys both a story that that appeared recently in the Post, which was about how gun sales are actually down because the people on Rick's side, sorry, Rick, but the people on the right are like, Donald Trump will take my guns. I don't need to stock up. And the people, but but there is a group for whom gun sales are are up, and that is people of color and other minorities. Right. God, I, I, God, I, I love the Second Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's something. I think Anna and I we've talked about this a little bit, and I've written about um, kind of the racist history of gun control. But there have been you know kind of history of people. You know, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells both said you know you have to have a gun because that's the only way to protect mm-hmm. against these motherfuckers. And I think that you saw that even in San Francisco um, in the late 1960s, where LGBT people were like, well, you know, we're dealing with a heavily Catholic police force that will do nothing if we are murdered, so we have to do it ourselves, that kind of fag-bash-back concept. And it- so I think that that's going to be really interesting, because I think that, you know, when we saw with the Philando Castile case, and we've seen again and again, it's that when... African-Americans and other minorities use their Second Amendment rights or don't or, you know, are holding an unarmed gun in a Walmart or may have something in their pocket that might look like a gun, even in an open carry state that carries a weight of suspicion that it doesn't have when you're, you know, a white guy going to a Chipotle on open carry day in Texas. And Rick, are you just like popping your popcorn here and cheering or or what do you think? I mean, I, I think you probably you, you endorse this reaction on some level. I, I absolutely endorse this reaction. You know why? An armed society is a polite society. And, and, and the differentials are what, make, are what makes people get, get their, get, show their ass when it comes to firearms. And, and I, I know this sounds a little colder, but, you know, deterrence works. And, and deterrence is important. And so, you know, the, 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 the five-foot-nothing woman who may have a Glock 19 in her handbag, uh, you know, there is a deterrent factor from whoever is going to try to go and, and, and carjack her. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, you, you're correct that police look at armed African Americans in a totally different light than, 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 you know, armed white suburbanites. And, and, un, and unfortunately, um, that hasn't, that hasn't really uh, percolated through police training yet Mm-mm. that that law-abiding African Americans have every goddamn right in the world to carry a firearm, 
you know, pending state and local law, okay? And and a lot of police departments uh, have not trained their people appropriately on that, and they need to. And and frankly, you know, for the, the vast majority of people who own firearms in this country of every race are responsible firearms owners. And that's just, you know, it, it, if they weren't given the number of guns in this country, this, this place would look like Raqqa. <laughs> But it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> Rick, oh, God. I've never heard that point made before that we should be having. I mean, considering that there are how many firearms deaths there are, most of them self-inflicted. You know, yeah. I, I've never heard the argument that we should. The, the reason you can tell that gun res- owners are responsible is that more people aren't dying. That's. That's that's bold. That's a bold statement. Um, and, and I have to <laughs> I have to jump in here with my. I'm of two minds. There is a part of me, and I can tell you exactly which part. It's the Texan. Um, (laughs) It's the Texan part of me that looks at this and sort of feels the same way that I think you both do, which is that right on, let's show those motherfuckers. You, you know, what does the NRA do when the masses of people of color join, right? Like, what do they do when um, the people who they've been boogeymanning, you know, show up in the parade? And and I, I find that fairly delicious. And then there's the troubling part of it, which is that we all seem to be agreeing that this might be actually a prudent move, which is scares should scare the fucking shit out of everyone after you stop, like, you know, thinking it's amusing. And then there's the, the I hate to bring facts into discussion, but I'm going to, which is that, you know, having more guns around actually does lead to more people using them. And we do have an epidemic of gun suicide. Uh, in this country. And, you know, physicians have have said that this is a, a violent, you know, it's it's a community disease issue and a health issue. And so I worry that if we arm up and we are living in this climate of fear, which, as you pointed out, Rick, Steve Bannon is, is stoking, you know, maybe what happens is not politeness, but we start shooting at each other. Right. And I think that that kind of... Well, look, I mean... Let, let, I will hear what Jane... Let me, let me, I'm going to hear what, hear what Jane has to say. I think that there's a sense that, you know, yet like minorities arming themselves. I think that 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 really says something about the fact that minorities better than anyone else know that, you know, if something goes wrong, the government's probably not going to be on our side, especially not this government. Mm -hmm. Like it's not going to be, you know, it's always interesting to me when people are, you know, we're so worried about like, you know, the FBA or the DOJ taking over or something. And now they're like, now Trump's like, oh, bring in the feds to Chicago. And everyone's like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for a lot of people, we've long known, and I think that there's a cultural history of minorities recognizing that when things go down, the government probably isn't where you're going to want to put all your trust. And I think that that's something, it's interesting, because I recently watched the uh, PBS documentary about the Oklahoma City bombing. And you see so much anti-government paranoia from so many people for whom the government poses no real danger. And yet for a lot of Americans, especially with kind of Jeff Sessions as AG, who's saying that, oh, the Chicago, you know, the DOJ's research into Chicago is based on anecdotes, but he didn't actually read it, so he doesn't really know. You know, when you have a government that seems set up to tell people that, you know, police misconduct is okay, and that blue lives matter, you know, you're seeing a lot of people who are saying the same thing, that, oh, we can't trust the government. The problem is that having all people agree that you can't trust the government is not the goal here. The goal Mm -hmm. here is to have a better run and more effective government. Right. And and Rick, honestly, um, if a black man celebrates open carry at Chipotle, or if there starts to be, you know, Black Lives Matters embraces the idea of arming themselves. I mean, come on, like these are, these are your people on the other side of the fence. How do you think they react to that? I mean, I'm that I'm I'm not confident things end well. Listen, I, I have to tell you, uh, you have to separate out two two parts of this. One is folks who use, carry, appreciate, hunt, shoot. Um, my father, actually. Case, I mean, my my friends and I have friends and family. I know they're out there. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, in that case, it, it's going to make zero difference. I mean, look, I, I like to say that, that, that in society there have been like a couple of big wars, a big social wars over the years, 
And conservatives lost the war on marijuana, and they won the war on guns. And so I think I think that, that there will not be a huge backlash or a panic or 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 escalating violence. I mean, look, if gun sales were going to increase the rates of violent crimes in this country, then the last eight years would have again we'd be raucous because gun sales have, have been enormous in the last eight years. But I, I think. I think that it is incumbent upon, uh, you know, law enforcement as as agents of the state who are allowed to kill you if they feel threatened, um, to recognize that that the Second Amendment applies to everybody across the board. And right. if if you are a legal if you are a legal gun owner and carrier behaving legally, you should have zero differential in whether you're uh, you know uh, an African American carrying legally or. Or, or a white suburbanite carrying legally. If you're carrying legally, you've got to be treated with respect by the state, and and you know that's the law. Now, will that happen? Nah, we, you know, we're going to see some places where that is not where that is less evenly applied. In Philando Castile is the I, vivid I, example here, and you know, Rick, why hasn't the NRA taken up the cause of Philando Castile? You know, I can't speak to that one in particular. I do know the NRA does have a, an outreach to African Americans. I do know that they. That they have that they have uh, repeatedly talked about that in the last few years. I don't view the NRA as stereotypically as a lot of folks do. I kind of I, I, you know, some of these are my people. I get them, and and they they really do look at this as a universal and colorblind right. Mm. Well, I think that looking at the NRA's history, I think that there was definitely a shift once the NRA offices moved in the mid seventies where the shift definitely went from talking to sportsmen and sportswomen to talking about self-defense generally in a kind of in a world in which every black guy is going to try and carjack you. But I think that another point I'd like to raise specifically about kind of gun rights and perceptions of guns has to go with, you know, I know I've talked about this a million times. I think I'll go to my grave talking about it. But I think one of the major issues here, again, is residential segregation. Mm. And I think the perception of why you own a gun is very different based on not just what you look like, but where you live. I talked to uh, Charles C.W. Cook. He's at National Review about this uh, a couple of months ago. But we talked about how, you know, if you, you know, if you live in a city, you are less likely to own a gun for the purposes of hunting. Mm-hmm. If you live in the country, you are less likely to own a gun for, say, the purposes of protection or something that you would carry in your handbag because you are worried about something happening to you on the streets. And I think that the perceptions of why people would own guns shape, you know, when we talk, when a lot of people in rural areas are terrified of cities and a lot of people in cities are, think that rural areas are backwards. You have these, all, that really goes to how people perceive why and how people own guns and use guns as well. Because I think that you saw, you know, even right after the Philando Castillo case, there were a lot of like, oh, you know, he's got a concealed carry permit, but why does he really have a concealed carry permit? Because, you know, right. why, why, why would you possibly need that living? You know, why would you need that? Of course, he, he's allowed to have it. He can have it. And I think that we see that, like, we see kind of ulterior motives being placed upon people because we can't, we live in such separated and segmented lot, like such segmented lives that we can't see why someone else would make a decision that we may not make because we're in a different environment. And I think that that comes back to, it's not just about guns. It's about talking about, you know, when you have a lot, like I live in Washington, D.C. I'm surrounded by the federal government. I am so not concerned about the federal government, like, taking over <laughs> anything because I can see that the federal government at this point couldn't make a ham sandwich. Mm. <laughs> but if you don't encounter the federal government on a daily basis, if you don't, you know, recognize that the federal government is technically responsible for, you know, why you can't do this or why this takes a long time to do, if you have never tried to get a permit for something, if you've never tried, to, if you've never seen a friend try to get a business license, you might think that, yes, the federal government is listening to all your phone calls and is under in your basement and is, I don't know, secretly, I don't know, trying to do something to your children or something, but I think that, you know, <laughs> it all has to do with what you're around and what you have experience of, because I think that that's, that's really the big story here, is that there are a lot of people for whom what the federal government or what government or what protest means has, it's very different depending on where you are. Well, I think that's, I think that's very true, Jane. I think that's, I think that's accurate, that, that there's, 
that there are, are separate cultural perceptions of the of the threat factors that drive a lot of these decisions and, and the and the threat level of the federal government. You know, when the federal government decides it's going to go and, and, and accomplish something or kill something, sometimes they're really good at it and sometimes they're terrible at it. And unfortunately, they're better at it in a lot of ways, well, maybe fortunately, not unfortunately, they're better at it in a lot of ways of, of killing bad guys overseas than they are of, of, you know, putting you in FEMA camps, which is the, you know, the sort of Alex Jones version of, of, of the federal government. Thank God. Um, but we can't rely on the federal government's incompetence. Like that's that's actually sort of where I come down on this. I think Jane has a point, but I think that's maybe what yeah, you're, I mean, you're going to say too. That, I think no. I think I think that points. You know, look, the federal government is slow, inefficient, clumsy, and unfortunately, it also weighs a trillion pounds. And and once it moves to do something, it often does it unsubtly and stupidly. Mm-hmm. And again, as a conservative, I am always wary of the power of the state over its people. Always. Mm-hmm. And if you're not wary about it, then you, you need to rethink your predicates as a conservative in this country. Right. And I think that that's been one of the, my, you know, kind of, I've written a lot about, you know, I write for MTV about the GOP and about the right. And it, I think that that's been my biggest concern is that people, people have stopped being concerned about the state, so to speak, and started more being like, well, what can I get the state to do for me? Which is, I mean, like, and I'm never, I'm never going to get tired of pointing out that, People on the right seem to forget that there's a socialist part of national socialist, right? And we should oh, yeah. we should be just as worried about that, and we should be just as worried about the license that voters seem to be granting the government to to move on those things that they themselves are scared of, scared of, and that that fear overpowers any other constraint they might place on the government. Right now, we've all agreed. So. <laughs> So I actually just want to bring back before we close because we're we're running out of time. Although I think we could all talk for longer. To come back to this guy's question about violence, when is it appropriate? Maybe I'll I'll turn Rick to your formulation, which is that if you could state it again, what was it about when is too early and too late? Too late to work inside the system and too soon to start killing motherfuckers. So where are we on that? And I let's let's get a consensus. Where are we on that spectrum? Uh, I well, think we're somewhat too late to work within the system that Bannon and Trump are building. Mm-hmm. But not still too soon. Let's be very clear. Till, still, still too, too soon. soon. By far, by a long stretch, way too soon. Okay. And Jane? Right. And I, I would agree with that mostly because it seems as if Bannon, like, you know, I think one of my favorite things about this current administration, and by favorite, I mean only thing tethering me to existence, is that they still have to deal with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell both of whom who seem to think that ever they're all playing the same game of chess, even though Stephen Bannon's version of chess is to flip the board over and set it on fire. Mm. They're still trying to help play within the old rules of what this looks like. Peter, you know, Paul Ryan still wants a better way, and Mitch McConnell still wants everyone to calm down and let him just get back to Kentucky. And I think that, you know, it's the system that's attempting to be created by both Trump and Bannon it's being created by people who have bragged for so long about being outsiders, and it turns out that you need a couple of insiders to know what they're doing in order to do it. Mm. And even what we're seeing on Trump care, what we're seeing on just kind of various issues, where clearly no one actually knew what they were doing or how to do it, and then a, you know, a federal judge could be like, come on, guys, this is ridiculous. Mm. I think it's, if the system created by Stephen Bannon were to exist in the real world, as they want it to, and I think it's on its way, but I think it's taking a lot longer than as expected because of what I was mentioning. I think it is a little too late, but it's definitely too early for, you know, killing people. I am glad that we've all settled on that. Um, My personal feeling is about in the same area. I do think, hey, guys, if you... Again, the Texan in me is saying it's never too late to explore the joys of gun ownership. There, It is fun to shoot things, not necessarily alive, but you know, if you are interested, get educated. Let's put it that way. And we'll we'll keep tabs on it, right? Unfortunately, hopefully, you know, you always know when it's too late, but we'll just keep our eyes and ears open. Thank you both for joining the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. All right. I was talking to and is still enjoying talking to Jane Coatson, my colleague at MTV News, where she does write about the GOP and conservative issues, among other things. And Rick Wilson, Republican troublemaker and reluctant 
friend of the pod. Hardly <laughs> reluctant. <laughs> Please, if you enjoyed this podcast, go rate it and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We drop on Fridays. So look for another one next week, although that will be guest hosted by my friend Jameel Smith. I will be on vacation. Uh, thanks again, guys, for joining me. Thank you so much. Bye. And that's it for the show. I'm Anna Marie Cox. You have been listening to With Friends Like These. If you have a question like Justin did that you would like the pod to tackle, you can email your MP3 to withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. You can also send your questions and comments that way. You can also tweet at us at crooked underscore friends on Twitter. I'm working on a Facebook page. I do value your feedback, and I do especially value people who are grappling with the issue of friendships and politics in their own lives and want to hear more from people like you and any audio or text questions you might have. Again, this has been With Friends Like These, a podcast about uncomfortable conversations. Join us next week.